Kia ora, welcome to Insight from RNZ. I'm Teresa Cowie. This week is New Zealand's pee habit out of control. Methamphetamine appears to have lost the dirty drug image it got in the 90s and is now cheaper and more available than ever. Border controls and authorities have been clamping down on it getting in and around New Zealand, yet reformed addicts say it's still far too easy to get their fix. A number of measures have been brought in by government in recent years, mostly aimed at cracking down on gangs, whom police say control nearly all of the country's pea trade. And just a warning, this programme contains some strong language. Thirty-four thousand New Zealanders use an amphetamine substance, including pee, each year. The police association and other agencies argue that their little understanding and lack of evidence to fall back on of how many people are directly affected by meth should be a priority in order to fix the problem. Emma, who's a reformed addict, says she feels helpless seeing how many people in her neighbourhood of Upper Hutt are hooked to pee. You just watch so many people fall down this hole that they can't come back out of. You know, that's how I feel quite lucky because I did come out of it and... Sorry. You know, I've had a lot of um, friends that are still using and it's hard. It's hard to know how how far I've come, but they can't do the same. They've got all the support in the world. I guess they just... People just think that they can beat the drug, but... When that's the case, the drug's already beaten them. The police's national manager of organised crime, Greg Williams, says the pea trade is thriving. You could be generating from a couple of kilos, potentially anywhere up to 700,000 in pure profit. Um, Obviously that's going to be split amongst a number of people, but that's a lot of cash. The police minister, Paula Bennett, says ironically the gangs who drive the pea trade are now begging for help because it's causing disruption within their own ranks. Stop peddling the bloody stuff and that's the best thing that you could do. If you're really that concerned about what is happening to some of your own members because it's now affecting your own whānau, then actually too many of our, much of our organised crime and our gangs are the reason that it is being imported, manufactured and distributed in New Zealand. I'm Carla Penman and this insight investigates the scale of the country's pea problem from all angles and what authorities are doing to curb the crisis. Pea first descended on New Zealand in the early 90s and soon became a locally produced drug made with over-the-counter cold and flu medicines. The Police Association President Chris Carhill says those who could cook it and where they were based determined how much pea was available. It was relatively low level. The purity was of mixed and the, and the quality was certainly um, very mixed. Things changed um, as it went through the 90s when the market really increased, the demand drove up really quickly and it was demand-driven rather than supply-driven. And people had to start and the gangs got involved, they had to start looking around for where they could get um, more resources and more material to actually, actually manufacture methamphetamine. At the same time, legislation came in that moved... Um, pseudoephedrine to a prescription medicine so it was taken out of the standard cold and flu um, remedies 
And so they looked offshore and they went to China and they came up with Contact NT, which is their cold and flu remedy manufactured in China. And we started importing bulk quantities of that. Initially it wasn't even illegal to do so, now, obviously illegal to manufacture it into methamphetamine, but it wasn't illegal to import it. And then it became a Class C drug um, before eventually Contact NT was moved up to be a Class B drug. But that was the real game changer because suddenly the ingredients were getting sold for thousands of dollars, um, more than we'd ever seen normal drugs in New Zealand getting sold for. Um, so there was suddenly millions of dollars to be made. And you're talking, you know, a kilo of this stuff could have been going for $30,000, and that's only to manufacture. Um, you add the finished product on and you're talking you know, money that had never been seen in um, criminal gangs before. He says gangs then started joining forces with Asian contacts. And suddenly you had Asian criminals in New Zealand who were able to link with the gangs and provide those links overseas. And you really had a situation where Asian gangs were responsible for importing the contact NT. They then supplied it to senior gangs such as the Headhunters and the Hells Angels. And they were in charge of controlling the cooks around New Zealand who were manufacturing the meth and then they would supply it to gangs such as the Mongrel Mob and the Black Pair, who were dealing it across the country. Mr Carhill says that gained momentum and those ties strengthened, and that's what's ultimately led to today's supply-driven market of mostly ready-made pea. He says the country's flooded with high-quality, cheap meth made in China. So this has sort of been seen in the massive 500-kilo um, haul on, in Northland and a large number of hauls that really are amounts that we would have thought were unimaginable just five years ago. He believes gangs control nearly all of the pea trade and he says this puts frontline officers in serious danger. Confrontation between gangs has certainly increased as they fight for territory and um, probably the, the other big thing is the, the link between methamphetamine gangs and guns. Um, it's pretty much now normal. If you find methamphetamine and a gang member, you'll add the trifecta of a firearm as well. So that's heightened the dangers for our staff out there. He says meth labs were also more mobile, making it difficult for staff to always be prepared. Detective Superintendent Greg Williams is the police's national manager of organised crime. What's really driving a lot of this for New Zealand is the... Um, transnational organised crime groups sitting outside New Zealand who have access to the raw products, whether that be methamphetamine or crystal meth or ephedrine. And our gangs here and transnational, uh, the top-end organised crime groups, have those links now right up to, the, to those sources. He says gang networks are generating huge profits. You could be generating from a couple of kilos, potentially anywhere up to 700,000 in pure profit. Um, obviously that's going to be split amongst a number of people, but that's a lot of cash. And we've had some very good change in our legislation um, in the last few years. The Criminal Proceeds Recovery Act is a very good piece of legislation that, that we have in New Zealand. We tend to take about 80 to 90% of assets that we identify and seize ultimately gets forfeited to the Crown. Uh, we have good powers of restraint. But one of the interesting things too um, has been that in that 16 years, because the gangs now have make, are making significant money, that's cash, because this is still pretty much a cash business, they've had to manage that cash. And there's been an industry built up around them of professional facilitators, that could be lawyers or accountants or trust service providers or people that are engaged in setting up structures to obscure the money and hide it and launder it for those organisations. 
He says the police have been working over the past few years to find out who's hiding money for gangs and making it harder for them to move cash between financial institutions. Customs has posted three officers to work in Asia with the goal of preventing illegal drugs, mostly pee, from being shipped to New Zealand. Hong Kong customs officials have stopped $30 million of meth from heading to this country in the past two years alone. I spoke over the phone to customs official Roger Batten, who's only three months into his posting in Hong Kong. You've got seven million people in a land area of about 1,200 square kilometres, so you know it's highly populated. You've got thousands of uh, people and goods crossing the border uh, every day, and it's quite a complex machine when you're looking at supply chains and how they all interconnect, new trade routes opening up. You know, Asia is our, our future for the next decade if you look at uh, trade across the board. And with that, that's great for New Zealand, but with that will come new uh, emerging threats. And so one of the reasons for being here is to share information, to run what we call multilateral operations, uh, because what we see on the ground is a lot of the syndicates that are targeting New Zealand are also targeting Australia. They'll reroute gear through different countries to try and hide the shipping lanes, etc., Mr Batten says he's not aware of New Zealand gangs being based in Hong Kong, but he knows some come over regularly. They do travel and they do do business. I would say from a New Zealand perspective, though, you're still seeing um, it's more of the transnational organised crime that's bringing the gear into New Zealand, and then it's local gangs that are then moving it uh, domestically. But we certainly do watch watch them um, and work with police closely on, on what the gangs are doing domestically and, and, and when they travel. He says Customs is working on getting a multinational seizure database up and running. Where Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong and uh, China's Anti-Smuggling Bureau are working to try and get our seizure data information into one database that we can then all work off. And then across that we can then start running data analytics and start looking at patterns and looking for outliers that we wouldn't necessarily uh, see on the ground. On the ground back here, Customs is devising new ways to keep up with the rise in big meth seizures at the border and the growing innovation of criminals. At the air cargo inspections facility by Auckland Airport, Lloyd Smith, who's the operations manager for processes and systems, says ephedrine, an ingredient used to make pee, is found on a daily basis. That is ephedrine that they're um, extracting. It's concealed uh, within the basis of some decorative tea sets, um, which is actually quite a, it's actually quite a common concealment method, both here and right across the world. Actually, if you go to Australia, they will have the same customs use a tool called the First Defender, a handheld machine which can detect and identify more than 11,000 substances in up to 15 seconds. Showing me how it's done is a customs technical specialist, Braden Harris. But this one here, I mean, if you looked at that, you wouldn't even know what it was. You know, it's very fine, very powdery. But when we look at our um, results here, we've actually got a mixture now. So these ones here came back as full-on positive for just the one substance. So that one there uh, was the cocaine. That one there came back as ephedrine, just positive. This is how smart the device is that actually you can determine if there's other agents in there. So this one here's come The back general manager of intelligence in investigations and enforcement, Jamie Bamford, says just this week they seized 176 kilograms of pee. In 2012, there's about 
six and a bit kilos came across. Uh, this year, well, 2016, was uh, in excess of 400 kilos of methamphetamine, so a significant increase. He says while it's mostly coming from Asia, it's also coming from Mexico, North America and Southeast Asia. We see um, meth coming in in the mail uh, through our mail centre. We see, as we've recently seen, meth uh, concealed within containers themselves. We've seen it stuffed in toys. We see it in liquid. Um, kind of, you imagine it, it's been tried. And as you've seen, we've also seen uh, smugglers try to land methamphetamine onto our beaches with that recent seizure of 500 kilos in Northland. He says border control can only go so far. To stop it fully, we'd kind of need to stop every single person and to search every container, and that would hold up trade. That is just not going to happen. Uh, it is not feasible. Uh, so, again, we continue to sort of refine our intelligence and really target where we think the risk is. Dennis Makaleo, a senior mongrel mob member in the Porirua chapter, says pee is so easy to make that stricter border controls would make no difference. Sitting across a table from him outside his Cannons Creek home, his face is covered in gang tattoos and he's wearing a T-shirt with Don't Meth Around in bold capitals. It's covered in words that describe the harm that pee can Suicide, bring. poverty, you know, violence, poor health you got gambling. He says gangs shouldn't be the government's scapegoat for the pee epidemic. Mr Makaleo and his wife Liz launched an anti-methamphetamine campaign called Pee Pull last year. We started this, you know, and um, we, we were looking for tools to see what works. And, and one, of the, one of our main tools is, is, is to help when people, after they detox, where do they go, what do they do. So we created a, a closed page. Uh, New Zealand people, so we can monitor it. And um, there's 3,000 on there now, and uh, they support each other. He says they've helped more than 40 addicts in the past two months alone. Mr Makaleo says addicts he's spoken to say they'd wished they'd known what harm the drug could cause. We've got to focus more around prevention education of stopping the next generation smoking it. And then we've just missed the boat on the second generation, so let's just try and catch the third generation. He says he knows of addicts as young as 14, so it wouldn't be crazy to teach kids at primary school level about drugs. Mr Makaleo says there should be government-funded anti-meth advertising campaigns, just like with smoking and alcohol. But Massey University drug researcher Chris Wilkins argues public health advertising isn't the answer here. Ads on television or going to schools to scare people into not using meth. There's a lot. There's no evidence that that makes any difference at all. Dr. Wilkins says teaching students about pee would only stir their interest. So going to high schools and talking about meth is the wrong audience because generally people don't start using meth at those age groups. There is a few, sure, but most people don't aren't really there yet, and their biggest problems are alcohol and perhaps cannabis. Gauging the scale of the problem and working out how many people are directly affected by pee has been difficult for police and other authorities to do. Meth use by people arrested is the focus of an annual study Chris Wilkins carries out as head of Massey University's illegal drug research team. 835 detainees were interviewed at four police stations nationwide in 2016. 
It found more than a third of arrestees last year admitted to using meth in the past 12 months, a 10% jump on the previous year. It begins to kind of tell you who are the vulnerable at-risk populations and also that group has really high levels of alcohol use and obviously they've just been arrested by the police. So a lot of red flags are coming up and that's often a really good window to start talking to people about you know, are you drinking too much? Are you using too much, you know, using meth? Are you using too much cannabis? The other study, also the first of its kind here, looked at drug use by testing Auckland sewers. On average, more than half a kilogram of pee was found each day across two of the city's wastewater treatment plants over a three-month period in 2014. One interesting finding we found was that methamphetamine use was pretty consistent through the week. So some drugs you only saw on the weekends, like um, ecstasy, uh, cocaine, we only detected those on the weekends. He says while they were able to find out how much was being consumed, it was too difficult to work out how many people were taking it. Emma, a 27-year-old reformed addict from Upper Hutt, puts the scale of her local area's pee problem in the hundreds. She says she was hooked after her first ever hit, which she got from a close friend who was an addict. The first few times it's amazing, but then the rest of the time you take it is just to stay that level of awakeness, I guess, just to feel like you're alive, but really you're dying. She says it quickly became a destructive force in her life. And then I just kind of fell into the wrong crowd, obviously, and just smoked a little bit more and a little bit more and then and then my relationship started to fall apart obviously that it got worse from then because I just started losing everything around me like my friends my family but I thought I was bulletproof at the time you know like it didn't I didn't really feel like it had that much of an effect of my life at that time until everything started crashing down. Very soon every two or three days she had to get her fix. I could flick someone a text and within half an hour be able to get it or text a friend to text a friend you know it's very very easy very easy. Emma says she knows of many people in their 20s and 30s who can't get off it. It's everywhere it's the people you hang out with every second person I know can either you know get it within a click of the fingers or smokes it or sells it. She says she was lucky her family and friends intervened when they did and urged her to get help. As soon as I knew my kids were getting taken off me, I knew I needed to stop straight away. And then within eight weeks, I got them back, which was pretty fast turnaround. Emma says she would support young children learning about drugs and the risks involved early. A report out last year from the New Zealand Drug Harm Index put the social cost of meth in the year 2014-2015 at $1.8 billion dollars. It also estimated that about 34,000 people are using an amphetamine substance, including meth, each year. But Peter Dunn says not all of those people are going to be problematic and needing treatment. You've got to add into that the financial, family, criminal, employment-related hazards. Uh, you've got to add in what's happening to in the, in the workplace to you know work, uh, workmates who might be adversely affected by someone's uh, drug behaviour, etc. So. I think you've got to take that 34,000 figure as a very conservative estimate of the spread of methamphetamine particularly, but but amphetamine-based drugs generally. And I don't think you can turn a blind eye to that. 
He says it's difficult to be absolutely sure about how many people are taking pee in New Zealand, but he's confident the 480 residential treatment beds available nationwide are enough. Mr Dunn adds the government's made progress with its national drug policy. The policy's a three-year policy. It's, a, it's getting close to its midpoint. Uh, we've done a lot of work um, in ticking off some of the, uh, the, the priority points of the policy. We've got work underway on the appropriateness of um, some aspects of the penalties regime, thus the, you know, the punishment fit the crime type of thing. Um, there's been work done about the establishment of the National Drug Harm Index, which I released last year, which shows the extent of... Uh, the cost of the problem to New Zealand. So there's a series of steps being taken as part of the national drug policy. Labor's police spokesman Stuart Nash says judging by the latest corrections figures, the government's failing to effectively fight its war on pee. 62% of every man and woman that goes through his doors, i.e. goes into jail, has a mental health and or addiction problem. Um, so there's about 14,000 Kiwis who were there for six months or longer. That's about 8,400 Kiwis who are going into jail for six months or longer every single year, and they're only testing about 50% of that 14,000. So what we're doing is we're just locking these people up and treating meth as uh, and addicts as criminals as opposed to treating them as a health responsibility. Mr Nash says police are only beginning to realise locking them up is not working. The Police Association's Chris Carhill says the police aren't trained mental health workers. We're really the emergency um, stopgap measure till it. We can get people to the right areas or refer them to the, the right help. But at the moment there's a real limited amount of people that can be referred to and the police end up dealing with people. There's a saying in the police, are they bad or are they mad? And um, it's really easy for mental health uh, workers and that to say, well, they've done something bad, so they're bad. But police know <laughs> they've done something bad because they're mad. He says it wouldn't be too much of an ask, however, for officers to keep a record of how many people they come across who admit to have recently used pee. Last week, the 8th Australasian Drug and Alcohol Strategy Conference was held at Tapapa in Wellington. The police minister, Paula Bennett, spoke about drug abuse, the social toll of meth and current policing challenges. And I, in my own office, in the five months that I've been the minister of police, have had gangs coming to me and saying, we'd like to partner with government on programmes that we can do to get some of our members off um, pay in particular. She says after years of causing harm by selling it, Gangs are now complaining they can't control members because they're hooked on pee, disobedient and ignoring the authority of the strict gang hierarchy. And I get that and I'm certainly not ruling something like that out. But excuse me if I'm also going to turn around and say stop peddling the bloody stuff and that's the best thing that you could do. If you're really that concerned about what is happening to some of your own members because it's now affecting your own whānau, then actually too many of our, much of our organised crime and our gangs are the reason that it is being imported, manufactured and distributed in New Zealand. And so if you want something from us that steps in and helps as far as um, rehabilitation and everything else, well, I want something from you. I recently caught up with the Tribal Huck gang leader, Jamie Pink, at a cafe in central Hamilton. Thank you very much. 
Excellent. He'd just come from making hundreds of sandwiches for school kids, a campaign he's led helping 31 Waikato schools for the past six years. With a coffee in hand and in between greeting passers-by, he says his anti-pea crusade was sparked by the very kids he feeds. It's always been a problem, but it's got worse. We started asking a lot of the kids what's going on. How come there's no food at your house? How come you're hungry when you get to school? And most of the little sorry stories ended up to do with pea in some sort of a way, you know, um, with their parents having problems with it. Last October, Mr Pink publicly put pea dealers in Narawahia on a 24-hour notice to leave. Actually, the ball started rolling a little bit before that. A lot of them had got the word, but so, so by the time we gave the 24 hours, the main ones had been notified, you know. There's only a few turkeys left at the end. He says by shutting down most of the town's 14 established pea houses, he believes they got rid of 90% of the supply. Anything successful if you cut down how much is there. And um, I'm not going to say there's nothing there, but, geez, if I can, if I can sniff any more out, look out, be around there to get rid of it pretty quick. Since then, he says his gang closely monitors the town's supply and last month shut down another dealer in the town. He says it wasn't a matter of shifting their problem onto another town to deal with. That's a concern because we don't want to just um, take the rubbish out of our town and put them somewhere else. But hopefully the way we've put them out, they're not an ability to set up anywhere else. You know, um, we, we, that is part of, that is a problem. And hopefully when they get somewhere else, they're booted out of there, you know. He says he knows of groups trying to clean up their act. And it's great to hear the police minister say that gangs are reaching out for help. They're calling out for help. There's obviously a big problem in their ranks. And, and, and you know, and, and at the end of the day, um, it's a breakthrough there. They're trying to get help and get their people off it. It's not a bad thing, you know. Good on them for uh, trying to do something about it. He says it's unfair, though, that Paula Bennett is pointing the blame at the gangs. They're, they're totally wrong there. You don't have to be Einstein to work out that the gangs probably don't even sell half that bloody shit in the country. There's, there's a lot of other people out there. And most of the people we've had to deal with were, weren't gangs, but they were syndicates. You know, I, think, I think the gangs are getting a bit of, bit of harsh treatment there, and I don't mind saying that too, because um, you, you can't blame the, the gangs for the majority of the people in New Zealand. There's other people out there too that don't wear patches on their bloody back. The Police Association President, Chris Carhill, says a push to opt out of the P-Trade will have to come from within the gangs, and it will have to come from the top. In some towns, where if you've got strong gang leaders who see the harm it's doing to their whānau and their communities, if they really want to get behind it, then they have the possibility at that level. But some gangs and some people in those gangs at a higher level are just driven by money, they're just driven by greed. Gangs like the Headhunters aren't community-driven gangs. They don't come from a whānau base like Mungo Mob and Black Power might. They've got no interest in, in those communities. They just want to make money. All of those who spoke to Insight for this program are united in calling for a new study to be carried out, which focuses on finding out the scale of the pea problem. Detective Superintendent Greg Williams says there needs to be some proper evidence-based research around the effect of addiction on the community. And of course that includes methamphetamine, um, as well as it does alcohol and gambling and the like. So we certainly need to get some pretty comprehensive research here so we understand that problem once and for all. Chris Carhill says the government should be looking to tertiary institutes to devise a way to do it. There needs to be a decent bit of research done with users and say why are you using, how did you get involved in it. Look at the demographics of those users. It's no use saying it's just lower socioeconomic people because it isn't. Peter Dunn also agrees. 
I think probably at some point some overarching research about over, overall social and economic impacts would be a good idea, but frankly at the moment the priority is dealing with the problem. It appears that so long as the gangs are driving the pea trade, prices high and the demand is rife, then pea could remain an ongoing destructive force in New Zealand. I'm Carla Penman, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this program, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. That program was produced by me, Teresa Cowie, with technical production by Phil Bench. And if you'd like to hear more Insight podcasts, head to rnz.co.nz slash insight or catch us on iTunes where you can rate, review and subscribe to Insight. Hey, Cornet R.